Hi, everyone. I'm Sarah Edmondson, and I'm here with... Hi, I'm Anthony Ames, Sarah's husband, a.k.a. Nippy. And we're here to talk about things that are... A little bit culty. Speaking of, we were in a cult, and we woke up, thank goodness, and we have a lot to say. And a lot to ask. This podcast is going to be a deep dive into everything from the red flags to the narcissism, the manipulation, the resiliency, the recovery process, and everything in between. Also, we want to share some of the good we got out of it so you can get all the nuggets without having to join a cult. If you haven't already, because there are a lot of things out there that are just a little bit culty. Welcome to A Little Bit Culty, a podcast about the fads, beliefs, and trends that blur the line between healthy and a little bit culty. Please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And find us on Instagram if you have any suggestions for things you have found to be a little bit culty. Under the surface, the water fills my lungs. This ground I worship has swallowed up its young. Well, let's get into this. Let's get into it. I'm so ex- I'm so excited. It's a big day. It is a big day. It's a um, big day. Everything's coming full circle. Since our last recording, we've had a child turn two. I, yeah, Ace turn two. has a recurring role on... We can't say what it is. A show, which we a recurring set. role on a major Netflix. He's a little baller. He's a baller. And he's actually worked more in film and television than... Nippy and I put together As this should, year. Let's be honest. I mean, so Sarah can attest. I'm pretty good with my memory, but when it comes to names that she throws at me, I forget. And I asked her the other day, I was like, we can do that Pet Shop Boys podcast. <laughs> I was like, uh, Preacher Boys. They were just forever the Pet Shop Boys to me, which I would like to do a podcast I don't know if we can, on the Pet we Shop can Boys. bridge the cult gap with the Pet Shop Boys. I'm sure we can find I'm sure something. we'll find a way in. And the other one was... Uh, Nick, Nick Vile, the was Vile Files. Just because his demeanor's pretty chill and cool. We had a really good, long interview that didn't have any lulls in it, as far as I could tell. No, I thought it was great. Uh, I just liked him. He's a good dude. Good dude. Anyway, there's been lots happening in the Edmondson Ames household, but also in the cultiverse. I'm honestly, for anyone listening who has emailed us and have not responded yet, I apologize. We're going to get on that this week. Yeah, we're reaching our max capacity Hundreds. in terms of responding to people. Yes. It's time to delegate. I think I have a what chops my ass. So in Nexium, there's a lot of feedback. And the higher up the ranks you went, the more you basically agreed that you would always be like available and open for feedback, which is a slippery slope because, you know, if you're in a system where people are truly there to support your growth and help you, of course you want feedback. But if it's also a system for gaslighting and abuse. It was a slippery slope that turned into a fucking luge. (laughs) (laughs) A landslide. (laughs) It turned into a landslide. And and here's one of the things I remember happening in in my early years is I was in a training called Level 2A. We had these like, they're called mentor groups. And there was somebody in my group who gave me the feedback that I looked angry. And I I didn't feel angry at all. In fact, I was surprised that she said I looked angry. And now you're angry. Oh, well, well, that's what happened. (laughs) Thanks for jumping to the punchline. (laughs) Lauren had to come over and I was like, but like she's giving me feedback that I'm angry. I'm not angry. And And the line was, all feedback's valid. All feedback is valid. Well, that's when you should have been like, you're a fucking asshole. I should have. And be like, all feedback's valid. <laughs> Which <laughs> reminds me, you know, it's, it's that, that's, you know, the Seinfeld episode where, uh, where what's his name? George Brandon. Costanza. Yeah. Sorry, brain fart. And for those of you who don't know listening, Seinfeld was a really big show in the 90s. <laughs> 
Carry on. Oh, thanks. Where he like obsesses about what he would say after the fact. I obsess. Not as much anymore, but certainly for the first few years out of Nexium, I'm obsessed about the things I would say after the fact to all these people, which reminds me, I had an incident at the park the other day with Ace and this little kid who his parents are just kind of ornery and not super friendly. And Ace went over and like, he's two, went over and like smashed this kid's, not even a castle. It was an upside down bucket castle of sand. You know what I mean? Like you can make a little pile. Kids destroy kids' castles. I know. Yeah, I mean, so that's Ace, the point. So Ace right. went over and like, playfully destroyed it and i went over and just to make kind of things light with this couple i was like oh sorry about that hey ace like let's leave other people's castles alone and the man looked at me the father of the little boy and said well it's not the first time that's happened and i was like what oh okay it's not gonna be the last i was like okay ace (laughs) let's go to a part of the playground where we feel welcome and was sort of passive aggressive about it but what i want to say now is to him Oh, would you like me to build you a new one? Like us also passive aggressive, I guess. But I would go straight at him. I just but I was like, seriously, guys, like this is sad. These are kids. Are you going to micromanage every interaction? Anyway, all feedback is valid is something that really chaps my ass because it gave them permission to give you feedback at any time about anything, even if it wasn't accurate for you. And if you had a reaction to it, which I did being like, uh, that's not true for me, then they would say, well, now you're having a reaction. And so obviously there's something in there that's well, important that's for you to lighting. look at. So that's what you need to go work on. I jumped ahead to what chaps my ass. So, And also just to wrap up a few things, just circling back to previous episodes, there was a lot of positive feedback, especially about the, the shoe conversation and oh. uh, the shoes that you gave me. And for those who missed it, I did post a picture of the gold shoes in my Instagram stories. So you can see the those beauties. You can see how we roll in the Ames house. And also wanted you to know that Nippy's shoe collection is on a special shelf that he refers to as... My portfolio, but here's the thing. You shouldn't be talking about that. Oh. You, in fact, you probably shouldn't even be looking at my portfolio. They're from my own way. I <laughs> let you into my closet to so guys, see this them. is the remnant. scale it. This is the remnants of our handle, time. You can't no. handle it all at once. This is like probably remnants of the brainwashing that we endured in Nexium. No, 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 feels no, 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 like no. he's better than there's <laughs> oh a there's a God. shoe hierarchy, like kind of like the stripe path, but there's like a, a Nike stripe path. You know what? First rule of shoe club. Don't talk about it. You don't talk about it. Okay. You know what the single best piece of feedback was? What? I read one of our reviews. Yeah. And it said, my voice is like honey. <laughs> And Nippy doesn't even do voice work you know, professionally. Well, this is, so this herein lies the problem. What? You're the voiceover you know. person in this house. And you've been married to someone with a voice like honey this whole time. And you haven't helped me monetize my <laughs> my sweet flowing nectar. That just sounds so off. It's my voice. I know. The segue is natural. All feedback's valid. Of course, doesn't apply to Nexium when people said to us when we were in it, wow, it sounds like a pyramid scheme. Or is this an MLM? And we were trained to say, no, it's not an MLM because MLMs are inherently unethical. And pyramid scheme, of course, implies that there's a scheme. This is not a scheme. It is the most ethical way to do business because... Here's our confusing business model. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, which nobody can understand. By the way, there came a point where I was Nippy's like, field trainer, which probably won't mean anything to anybody, but like I basically was helping him with sales. It was a position in the company. And he'd be like, wait, can you just explain to me again? (laughs) Like every month he'd be like, how how am I, how is this working? And I'd be like, oh my God, Nippy, like it's just, but it was confusing. It was totally confusing. So when we started the Little Bit Culty podcast and we put it out there to the listeners, 
please tell us about things you want us to talk about and to determine what's culty and not. I think the request that we got most often, more than anything else, was to do an episode about MLMs. Mm -hmm. And first of all, we didn't know who to talk to about that. I personally have some experience, which I can relate to separate from Nexium, just with friends and <laughs> in various yeah. MLMs. It's amazing for... how, we, how I sniff those out, but not the one I was in. I know. <laughs> um, the, you know, when they invite you to different parties and, you know, essential oil classes and jewelry parties and, well, it's 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 largely with women. And I, I, I've, in my research to prepare this episode, I've discovered why, and perhaps we'll talk about that with our guest. But Douglas Brooks is definitely the person that we need to be talking to for a number of reasons. And not only is he an expert in the field, but he has experience with Nexium. So I'm super excited to talk to him. He's actually an attorney. He's dedicated a significant portion of his practice to representing the victims of deceptive MLM schemes, including such cases as Webster versus Omnitrition International, Rhodes versus Consumers Byline, which was the case against Keith's first business before he started Nexium. Jacobs versus Herbalife International. He's interviewed or deposed hundreds of participants in MLM schemes, reviewed tens of thousands of documents which were produced by MLM firms subject to confidentiality orders, and studied the compensation plans of scores of MLM companies, which is basically to say he knows what he's talking about. And if anyone doesn't know what a compensation plan is, that's the payment structure of how people get paid in MLMs, which is... Which are largely confusing. Confusing, but also where the deception lies. He's also worked pro bono for a number of nonprofit organizations, including the effort to educate and protect consumers from deceptive and fraudulent MLM schemes, including Pyramid Scheme Alert, www.pyramidschemealert.org, and the Consumer Awareness Institute, www.mlm-thetruth.com. Douglas Brooks, welcome. Sinking down to the depths of the ocean Hanging on to the wind I love Fell like gold, held it all like a leaf I don't know Doug Brooks. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are so excited to have you on because we have a zillion questions for you. I hope I hope you've had as much caffeine as we have. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I've, I've had my quota for the day. <laughs> yeah. When we decided to do this podcast and we put it out to the universe and our audience, what culty things do people want to know about that we could look at? So many people wrote us saying, would you please do an episode on MLMs? And I found that quite shocking, actually, more than any other culty thing. We got bombarded with it. And so many people told me things like personal stories of saying that they lost friends to different schemes and different groups and, you know, trying to sell them stuff. You know, I, obviously I can see correlations right off the bat, but one of the things that we want to do with the podcast is to look at, you know, what makes a healthy group that's dedicated to something? When does it turn south and become bad? You know, where's the deception? Where's the thing that makes it what we know as a cult, like a bad cult versus a, a group of people excited about this similar cause? When our mutual friend Ken suggested that we speak, we were so excited because what we were looking for was somebody just like you as an expert in this field. And we have so many questions, but the first thing we wanted to ask was, how did you become a lawyer that became an expert in MLMs? Would you tell us a little bit about yourself? I, I guess my, my first MLM cases I filed in the early 1990s. Before then, in the 80s, I had worked in a firm that specialized in franchise law. And we represented franchisees and uh, distributors in traditional you know, organizations across the country. 
about, I think it was 1992, one of my fellow lawyers in that firm, we, we, we branched off, we, we, uh, we left that firm and we started our own firm and we thought we would continue doing you know, franchise cases. Since we had no money to, to pay the rent or anything like that, we shared office space with another firm in exchange for our time. And this was a firm that did a lot of class action work. And they had just filed a bunch of cases against multi-level marketing companies alleging that they were uh, pyramid schemes. And they didn't quite know what to do with these cases. And then we felt, well, geez, with our background in franchise law, we ought to be able to figure out you know, these cases pretty easily. And then quickly found out that multi-level marketing is an entirely different animal. It's not really a product distribution system at all. It, it really is a, a recruiting game. We got further and further into it. And I, I took a particular interest in these cases. And it, the, I just sort of you know, grew from there. I mean, I, I've done many, many different types of cases, you know, class actions and, and other types of cases. It was these pyramid scheme cases that really sort of got my gut. And now that I'm, I'm sort of semi-retired, I spend most of my professional time on these cases, on, on arguing for better regulation and transparency in the industry and uh, representing consumer advocates uh, pro bono who, who get uh, threatened or sued by uh, multi-level marketing companies. And I'm in the process of working with a group of folks that are uh, we're organizing a conference on the multi-level marketing industry that will be taking place April 30th and May 1st this year. We've got speakers lined up from the Federal Trade Commission, from international regulators, academics, consumer advocates, social media folks, all uh, focused on the problems caused by, by this industry. We'll make sure to include the information about that workshop in our show notes so people can check that out. And I would be remiss if I didn't bring up the fact that you, and one of the reasons we were excited to speak to you as our MLM expert is that you actually first heard about Keith Raniere, I'm understanding, through Consumers Byline his venture before Nexium, And I'd love to hear your perspective on that. And, you know, obviously our podcast isn't just about Nexium, but that's our background. So when we joined, as you know, 2005 for me and 2001 for Nippy, there wasn't a, a ton of bad press yet, but there were, if you knew how to dig around on the internet, which was also still pretty new back then, you could find some information about his original company called Consumers Byline International, which from what I was told was, was a buying group similar to something like Costco that could get goods to people at a much more discounted rate. In other words, Keith recognized that there was unethical behaviors in the market and the, and the market prices were so driven. And he also understood that so many people, I don't remember the number of Americans were in debt and he wanted to change that. He was such a noble, ethical man that he wanted to change the whole system. So he found a way to get goods at a discounted rate by buying it in bulk and then delivering it to his membership. There was also a recruitment of selling memberships to people. So the membership was really, really cheap. And then you had access to all these goods at a totally discounted rate. And that this was such a noble 
way of helping Americans that, of course, it got shut down by a number of attorney generals. And in the in, was it in Arkansas or something? So, um, yeah, the story was this is when I went and asked him directly because my reservations were around what happened there. And the story they told us is that 22 district attorneys in 22 separate states filed a lawsuit against them. And that when he went out to Arkansas, that representatives from Walmart and someone related to the Clinton administration that he wouldn't say, he presented his not saying it as honorable. Like he didn't want to out the person. And he's like, they offered me $5 million to take my company um, outside their state and shut it down. And I wouldn't take the money. And when he told me that, and I went and checked with other people, they were like, yeah, you know, apparently one of Clinton's lawyers in the Walmart family didn't want his model because it was going to put them out of business. And this is what they sold people that enrolled. They sold yeah. consumer bylines as a successful business. Yeah. He said they, they used to tell us that he did, I don't remember the number, but like X billion amount, 50 million in his first year, second year of business Some crazy, or something. something. It did so well that it was a threat to capitalism, I guess. No, it was a threat to <laughs> a threat people to that wanted to control the market. So that's what we were told. And Nippy thinks I'm crazy, but every time I do these podcasts, I'm also trying to reach the 20 remaining loyalists who haven't seen the full picture yet. Because if I had known what I think you're about to tell me, I would have run the other way. So what was CBI actually? CBI was a cleverly designed pyramid scheme. It was portrayed as a multi-level marketing company in which the product was membership in a buying club. You would become a member of this buying club, and then you would also recruit other people to become members of the buying club. And the reason I call it clever gets into sort of the intricacies of how multi-level marketing companies are, are designed. We can get into that later, but the basic product, this uh, buying club, we learned in discovery was created by an entirely separate company called, I think it was Purchase Power Inc., a company that had been in business long before uh, CBI. And they sold discount buying memberships to uh, corporations that they could offer as you know employee benefits or something like that. And the basic price was something like 20 bucks a year. CBI sold those memberships for something like $200 a year. The idea that there was some benefit to joining CBI is a little questionable. That extra money, the 180 or so dollars, that went to basically to, to pay commissions to, to the people that joined. And following a typical multi-level marketing structure, most of those commissions went to the people at the very top and very little went to everyone else. And I think at its peak, uh, CBI had somewhere between 100,000 and 200,000 members. Uh, and, and with an MLM, those numbers constantly fluctuate because people are constantly dropping out. I mean, the, the, the sort of grandiose notion that this is something that's going to upend capitalism or, or the idea that Walmart would have paid some huge sum of money for, for Keith to walk away from the business is sort of ridiculous. Uh, certainly nothing like that came up in Discovery. Uh, I've never heard that before. Really, what happened in the case is that you know we filed our complaint. I think it was 1992. The main defense that CBI raised was they had an arbitration clause in the distributor agreement. So this this is a clause that says you can't sue us. You have to arbitrate, and you can't do it as a class action. And so that was their their main defense. 
we had adequately alleged that they were a pyramid scheme. A pyramid scheme violates New York state public policy, and therefore the judge would not enforce a contract that violated public policy. Sort of a, a technical legal thing. CBI appealed that to the First Circuit Court of Appeals. And while that appeal was pending, the New York State Attorney General filed a complaint. And they sort of doffed their hat to us because they used some of the information or some of the allegations in our complaint. Uh, they, they modeled their complaint based in part on, on that. And essentially, they were able to shut CBI down. There had been a number of state actions against CBI before this, but they, they only affected their own states. Arkansas uh, can only protect uh, Arkansas consumers. But because CBI was located in New York, New York was able to shut them down completely. Such a different story than what we were told. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm afraid so. There, there was a creative aspect to how it was designed, but it was basically the, the same model that MLM has followed right. since the 1950s. I don't know if you know this, but Keith proudly in his teaching of sales shared that he did sell encyclopedias door to door and did do Amway and tried all the different models and had decided that MLMs were inherently unethical, which is why when I joined Nexium and people would say, oh, it looks like a pyramid scheme or it's an MLM. And I talked to the leadership about that. They said it's not an MLM because MLMs are unethical and this system is not. So before I even get into that, can you very quickly define MLM versus pyramid scheme versus direct selling as best you can? Direct selling is the easy one. Direct selling is person-to-person selling other than from a fixed retail location. You know, the old door-to-door salesman, the, the, the direct seller, sometimes he, he actually owns the stuff that he's selling. So he buys it from the company and then resells it to the customer. Sometimes he just writes up an order, like the encyclopedia salesman. He doesn't own the encyclopedia he's selling to you. He just writes up the order, and then the, uh, the company delivers it to you and then pays him a commission. And maybe there's a, a regional manager who gets a piece of that commission. Maybe there's a zone manager who gets a, a smaller piece of that commission. But So there might be you know, two or three, three levels of, of management that get a piece of that commission but the guy that actually makes the sale gets the biggest cut. Okay. And that's ethical. That's ethical. Direct selling is as American as apple pie. It's been mm-hmm. around for thousands of years. There's just n- nothing wrong with it. Multi-level right. marketing likes to portray itself as direct selling. But the way multi-level marketing works is when you become a distributor, you not only get the right to buy and sell the products that are advertised or marketed by this company. You also get the right to recruit other distributors and you get the right to sell them the right to recruit other distributors and on and on so that you can recruit what they call a large downline of distributors below you. And every time one of those distributors buys a a product from the company, you get a, a commission. So you could say in one way that MLM is a type of direct selling in which the distributors can recruit other distributors. Not to get too technical, I don't even think it really is direct selling at all because the focus really is on recruiting. Every time you look at an MLM company, people are not making money by selling products. The people that are making lots of money are 
are successful recruiters. So it really is a recruiting game. So the distinction is, is as a distributor, I am not making money off my product. I'm making money off the effort of other people. Yes. And the issue of a pyramid scheme, a pyramid scheme is an arrangement where participants pay money for the right to recruit people and receive compensation that is not primarily related to retail sales. MLM companies uh, very often are accused of being pyramid schemes. And certainly in my experience, essentially everyone that I've looked at has turned out to be a pyramid scheme, uh, at least mm-hmm. under, under that definition, because the emphasis is on recruiting. The people at the top are making a lot of money from recruiting. Right. The people at the bottom are constantly churning in and out, losing what they put into it. And the incentives of the compensation plan are all in favor of uh, recruiting rather than retailing. And and in order to earn commissions based on your downline, that downline you've recruited, you have to keep on buying stuff. Every MLM I've ever looked at, there is some kind of purchase qualification in order to earn commissions. If you interview an MLM company, they will swear on a stack of Bibles that they do not require purchases. But if you look at their comp plan, what you find is that in effect, in order to really participate, in order to earn those commissions, you've got to buy stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. theoretically, you could just get in and not buy anything. And and yeah, no one's going to hold a gun to your head and say you have to buy something. But in order to reap the benefits of being in the plan, you've got to buy stuff. And those purchases are the things that that, that drives the success of the company. The, the longer you keep people in, the more people you recruit, the more successful the MLM is, is going to be. So what I'm hearing you saying, pyramid scheme is synonymous for you with MLM to a degree. Yeah, I wouldn't. I, I don't want to go that far. Okay. I just what I'll say is everyone I've looked at so far. Right. What I'm understanding for myself, because I agreed when people wrote to me that MLMs can be culty and the division of friendships are similar in terms of like having a friend in a cult is very similar to having a friend who's trying to sell you. X, Y, and Z out of their garage, right? And the distinction I'm coming to terms with for myself is that the, and tell me if this is accurate, is that the cult that is destructive is a, is destructive because there is a deception and there's a lie. And the deceptive lie that is also part of MLMs, that the ones that you've looked at, is that it's not true what they're saying. And what they're saying is you can make a lot of money and they're promising financial freedom and they're promising all these things that are actually very, very difficult, if not impossible, or only possible for the 1% at the top who are earning from the efforts of the 99% worker bees. You really, you, you, you have it. I mean, and that's one of the, the sort of the tragic things about this is because people, they get involved and they start recruiting their friends and their family, turning those personal relationships into commercial relationships. And then they find out after, the, after a while that they're really not being successful. They're, they're losing money. And not only are they losing money, but the people that they brought into it are losing money. So they not only have harmed themselves, 
they've harmed other people. The, they're not only victims, they're also perpetrators. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the, one of the things that sets this apart from other types of, of consumer fraud is that the MLM process turns people into recruiters, even before they really understand what they're getting into. I mean, one of the first things they have you do is you know, make a list of all the people you know. And because you're going to be, you know, you want to share this opportunity with them. You know, this is such a wonderful thing. We are going to change the world and make it a better place. And it would be wrong not to share this with your with your friends and family. And everything that you just said was also said to us in right? some shape or form. Some, in some shape or form in Nexium as well. Like as soon as you did the five day, like, wasn't this training amazing? And everyone's like, yeah, because they're all high off the experience. And then can you think of who else in your life would you would you want to share this program with? And we're all writing lists because not only, at least for me, was I 100 percent truthfully so enamored with the whole thing and I did want to share it with everybody. But if you shared it with three people within, at the time it was three months, you got your entire tuition back. Which was impossible. Three and, well, I did it because <laughs> I was such a good recruiter, which is something I've also come into terms with this, with this whole debacle. And I, I, I don't say this proudly. It's part of my like. Well, your skill set was abused. My skill set was abused. But like, you know, when I say I was a you know, star recruiter or whatever, like however I'm portrayed in the media, I'm not saying that because I'm proud of it. I'm saying it because I'm trying to take ownership of it so I can like own it, that I did that and learn from it and teach people why it's bad so that other people don't make the same mistake that I did. Right. So that's largely why we're doing all of this, you know, the podcast and everything. Well, I mean, ultimately, this is all about abuses of power. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, the through line with everything from we've talked to people in Scientology, we've talked to people you know, and what what you're saying and other domains, it's always about abuses of power. And one of the things that's particularly interesting about this is in a world, is there a world where these types of companies can be ethical? Have any of them come close? What are they missing? It seems to me from from what I've listened to in your work is that ultimately they don't because the numbers always, you end up exceeding the number of people on planet in order to there's a term for that too right the the concept that there's there will come a time where the recruitment pool will dry up right I, I like to compare this to to an issue with franchising when I did franchise cases one of the types of cases that we handled we call them cannibalization cases those are cases mm -hmm. where one franchise store is located too close to another store so it has an impact mm -hmm. and you know my one of my my most famous franchise case was a case called Sheck versus Burger King, where I represented this Burger King franchisee and Burger King opened a, a location that that cut his sales. I forget what the percentage was. Basically, it took away it made a profitable store into a loser. And we sued. The judge ultimately ruled that there's a covenant of good faith and fair dealing. So even though Burger King didn't grant protected territories, it didn't give Burger King the right to build a store anywhere it wanted if it was going to harm an existing franchisee. But the, the point of that is that franchisees in normal systems, distributors in normal systems, don't want there to be a lot of other distributors because that's competition. Ideally, you want to have an exclusive. And if you can't get an exclusive, you at least want a limit on the number of, of other distributors. With multi-level marketing, this gets turned on its head. The distributors right. are recruiting other distributors. And if you're in the business of retailing products, the last thing you want is 
a million other people that are selling the same thing at the same price to the same people. And that's what makes this thing impossible to work as as a form of, of retailing, as a form of product distribution. Because in a viable distribution system, you know, the company has to be happy, but the franchisee or the distributor has to be happy too. Everybody has to be able to have a reasonable chance of making a profit. But with MLM, you really can't make money retailing because you've got all these other people out there who are who are selling the same thing. You could have a perfectly wonderful product, and some of them are and some of them aren't. If, if there's a million other people out there selling the same thing, maybe you're going to be selling it at cost. Maybe you're going to be selling at a loss, but you, you know, you're, you're not going to be able to, to make the kind of profits that you need to, to have a functional business. And if you look at any MLM, what you see is over and over again, the people at the top, the people that are marching out into the stage and talking about all the money that they're making, the money that they're making is commissions from their downline. They're not mm-hmm. making a lot of money retailing uh, the product. So again, I apologize if I've gone off on no, that. No, no, no. No, you actually just reminded me that, you know, it's true where, where I ran the center in Vancouver, as you know, and that was a huge problem because it's a small community here. And, and ultimately people would hear about Nexium and there'd be fights over who was going to be the sponsor for somebody because the, you had to fill out on your form when you're signing up for a five day, you know, all your information. Right. And you have to say who is responsible for you coming. And someone would come to me and be like, well, I heard about it from this person. I met them on set and I heard about it from that person at a party. But ultimately I came to your intro, Sarah, and I heard it from you, but I, I wouldn't take credit because I was that was my job to put on inf- info nights, right? So I have to figure out well who told you about it, and then people would like fight over people. Well, I well I told them about it first, but the other person convinced them to sign up and got them to sign the paperwork. Like it was that kind of crazy yeah. dynamics that was so toxic. I feel like you know, and this is something that I brought up with you on the phone when we were when I first introduced myself to you that I feel like I have to say, and I'm hesitant to say it, but I feel like I have to, that I was in an MLM before I even got into Nexium. And the story behind that is that when I was in university in the 90s, somebody very close to me uh, had success with an MLM and put me in their downline so that when I came out of university, I'd have another stream of income. And so when I came out of it, I was like, what's this? (laughs) And took the products and enjoyed the products and didn't do much with it till I needed a side hustle to my acting and I gave it a go and I didn't get very far. I don't think I got past the first, like, you know, the different levels that you have to go up to, to be successful in an MLM. I like the product. I did not enjoy the recruitment of other people and to get them into the business. And in fact, put a very large strain on one of my very best friends uh, relationship because I, I brought her in and it really wasn't like in line with who she was and, I think we've since mended, but like, wow, that was a really painful juncture for us. But it did teach me a lot about kind of basics in regards to like some of the skills that people need to be successful in an MLM in terms of follow up and the hustle and the but ultimately, you know, what what I have had to come to terms with with both that company, which I'm going to not mention because I still have family and friends involved in it. And I, you know, (laughs) I don't want to cause more pain, but hopefully maybe they'll listen to this and reevaluate things, I hope. But I had to come to terms with the the grossest part and like why I will never, ever, (laughs) ever join anything like this ever again is that 
every person you meet is potentially uh, a recruit. You sit beside somebody on the plane and you're not just casually getting to know them. You are trying to elicit information about them so that you can sell them a product. So for me with Nexium, all the hesitations I had about that, and this is what we were then trained to do with other people, is EM them away from that yucky feeling. Like if you felt uncomfortable about re- approaching somebody or recruiting somebody, it was just a fear, just something you had to get over. And I would present that to a coach and then I'd get EM'd. And then- the term you just said EM, what's that? So an EM is when it was basically the therapeutic process that Keith apparently invented, which I've since learned that he didn't. But it's essentially bringing something to a facilitator that you feel uncomfortable with could be anything from like, you know, anytime somebody gives me feedback, what an EM was designed to do is to overcome an issue. I think that's the congruency with what he's saying, because in what I've listened to, to yeah. Douglas say is it always comes back to your fault yeah, for not so, being able to grow it. And an EM was basically acknowledgement of you going to someone, hey, it's my issue that I can't do this. And the, the organization was going to help us with that in short, right? There's, there's two points there. One is with a point that Nippy just made, which is I've seen that in every MLM. It's you're, you're, you're trained really from the get-go. Uh, they tell you, well, this business is not for everyone, and uh, not everyone succeeds, and if you don't follow the plan, you, you know, you're not going to do good. And then, of course, when you do fail, you know that it, it's your fault. It's your issue. It's not because yeah. there aren't enough people on the planet. It's not because you can't make money retailing. Um, it's not because the comp plan is weighted to, towards the top. It's because some failing on your part. But the other thing, the the reason I asked the question to begin with is that this term EM, this is one of the features of of MLMs, and I think of cults also, is is this whole language, these these jargon, this terminology that's developed so that you become this this little insular group where only people who are insiders know certain terms. And when you first join, you know, you hear people using these terms and you're not even sure what they're talking about and you have to be taught what these things are. And it's one way of sort of isolating people in group versus out of group. Us versus them. You know, one of the things, Douglas, that we learned in Stephen Hassan's model, the bite models, behavior, information, thoughts, emotions. When you load the language, you're in essence controlling people's information and how they transmit the information. So, you know, when we talk about a little bit culty, those are the things that are a little bit culty. So those distinctions are very important. Leah Remini mentioned this on our episode with her that, and she shared with us that so she, the, one of the reliefs of being out and being free is that you can just meet somebody and just meet them and get to know them without any ulterior motive. And that was one of the first things that I EM'd. I said, I feel like I have an ulterior motive and that doesn't feel right. And the person who am me said, well, you do have another motive and that is to enroll them. But why is that bad? You want to help them and you want to help usher them into the best version of themselves. That is a great, beautiful ulterior motive. So that was how that was reframed for me, that it wasn't a bad thing that I saw somebody that way, but I didn't realize how much of a filter that was on every interaction until I no longer had it. And I, I feel like that's what I want to give to anyone who's listening who might be in an MLM. You don't even know how gross that is. You don't even know how gross that feels to other people. And that's what I wanted to share real quickly is that 
I was on the, an airplane about a year ago with somebody who sat beside me and I was traveling alone with my baby and she was so nice to me and she was helped me hold my baby. So I go to the bathroom and we, we became friends and she elicited my phone number. And later she called me to sell me these products for a MLM cleaning, like toxic chemical free, da, 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 which she had mentioned a number of times during the plane ride. And I hadn't bitten because I didn't, I knew exactly where she was going. But she got my phone number and she called me later to recruit. And I said to her very, very directly, it feels really shitty that you got my number and you, and you, it's a bait and switch that you're now inviting me to this because guess what? I've done that to people. And I just want other people to know <laughs> who might be listening. That's just gross. Like, and that's when if anyone says to me, like, I'm thinking about going to this thing and I might sign up and I'm like, don't do it. Do not do it. And I'm going to be just as loud about MLMs as I am as cults. So that's because my... they're a little bit culty. They are a little bit culty. They're, no, actually, I think they're a lot culty. And we're going to get into more of that. But you had a lobbyist question. Go for it, babe. So one of the things that, in listening to one of your lectures and, and the things that are really interesting to me, not just you know figuring out how these things are coercive, but the systems in place in our governments that protect them, you know, with Scientology, you know, Scientology was able to manipulate the IRS and the First Amendment. And you mentioned something about the lobbyist groups that exist that protect these things, particularly, I think it was with the MLMs you were talking about. Can you go into the architecture of that and what, what things in our government are protecting things that aren't good for business people, abuses? The primary trade association of, of multi-level marketing companies is the direct selling association. And notice they, they use the term direct selling, but mm -hmm. I think something like 97% of their membership are uh, multi-level marketing companies. In fact, Tupperware, which is a real direct selling uh, company, they left the DSA uh, a number of years ago and they, they released a statement that at the time basically saying, they were leaving because the industry looked, kept on looking more and more like mm. pyramid schemes, and they didn't want to be uh, associated with it. Well, good for them. I think at one point, Avon had left uh, similar reasons. The Direct Selling Association is, is a very effective and sophisticated uh, lobbying group. And the industry itself, at least since the 1970s, has been very well-connected politically. Amway, for many years, was one of the biggest uh, single donors to the, uh, the Republican Party. Wow. You know, Reagan spoke to uh, a meeting. Gerald Ford spoke to, to uh, Amway uh, uh, meetings. Really going way back, the in industry has been very politically connected, and they hit way above their weight in terms of influence uh, because, you know, in terms of retail sales, uh, they represent maybe less than 1% of, of retail sales in the country, wow. but, but their lobbying is, is, is very effective. And I'll, I'll just, I'll just give one example in, uh, in the mid 1990s, the federal trade commission <coughs> issued a, a, a notice that it was considering issuing uh, a regulation governing business opportunities, including uh, multi-level marketing, similar to the regulation that was already in place regarding franchising. There's a franchise rule that says before you buy a franchise, you have to get a disclosure statement. It's a big, thick 
volume of, of information about the, the franchise opportunity, the finances of the company, the terms of the deal, everything you could possibly want to know has to be disclosed to you before you pay anything. But business opportunities like MLMs were not subject to that rule because uh, basically if, if your initial payment is less than $500, uh, you know, you're not a franchise. But like I said, in the mid-1990s, the, the FTC said, we're thinking of doing something similar with other types of business opportunities. And that started a process that took a long time. I and other people you know, submitted proposals and comments, you know, whether there should be a regulation, what it should look like. And in, I think it was 2005, so like at least 10 years later, the, the FTC issued a proposed regulation that would have cover, governed MLM. It, it, it would have required multiple marketing companies to provide a disclosure statement to people before they paid any money. And it would have provided a cooling off period. So, you know, you'd get recruited, but before you, you were allowed to pay anything, you'd have to you know, wait five days or seven days, something like that. And they would have to give you a disclosure statement and if they were making earnings claims, they would have to back up those claims and, and show you, you know, what, what are, what, what's the basis for this claim? They'd have to show you the real, the real data. Well, I was very surprised when that regulation was issued because they really hadn't done anything for, for so many years. But, you know, that was great. That would have been wonderful. But the industry, the DSA and, and the big MLM companies got together and they, they launched a, a multi-million dollar lobbying campaign. Uh, and they got senators and representatives to send letters to the FTC. They, they got uh, MLM distributors to, to, to sort of do these cookie-cutter letters. They sent like twelve or 15,000 letters wow. to the FTC saying, you know, don't, don't do this. And in any event, about two years later, the FTC revised its business opportunity rule to exempt MLMs. And there was another process that took place after that. And finally, the, the rule didn't become final until 2012. So you can see how long these things take. But MLM was exempted. So MLM, at least in the United States, MLM is the only type of business opportunity that does not have a, a pre-sale disclosure rule. Every other type of business opportunity, whether it's a franchise or uh, a vending machine or a rack sale or, or, or any other type of business opportunity has to provide pre-sale disclosures, but MLM is exempt. our stories. We change the world. A Little Bit Culty is proud to support the hashtag I Got Out project, which empowers survivors of cultic abuse to share their stories online as a catalyst for education, prevention, and healing. Learn more about the hashtag I Got Out movement and find resources at igotout.org. So in short, legislation that applies primarily to MLM and should apply to MLM doesn't apply to them and applies to ethical companies instead. Right. And, and, and <laughs> wow. that's a demonstration of the power 
of the basically the pyramid scheme lobby. Wow. So what can you That's tell our viewers <laughs> about that? What could be done about that outside your work? And how do you heighten awareness around it besides doing a podcast and getting, you know, I mean, that's, that's pretty, that can destroy people's lives unwittingly. Uh, what I, what I tell people, what I hope people will do is, is if you had an experience in an MLM, and I'm going to assume it's a bad experience because it is for 99% of the people. It is very easy to to file a complaint with the Federal Trade Commission. You can go online. Uh, I'll have to give you the 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 the, the website. But if you should, if you just go to F, FTC, you know, if you just Google Federal Trade Commission, you'll find it. File a complaint with the FTC. What that's step one. Take that same you know same letter that you submit to the FTC and write to your congressman, your congressman and your senator. You know, the, the, the politicians need to hear mm-hmm. from the people who are in these things. They're already hearing from the DSA. The DSA, you know, they have offices on, on K Street in, in, in Washington, D.C. They're, they're in the Capitol building every day uh, knocking on doors. The victims have to be heard. And the way for them for, to be heard is, is you have to tell your story. I mean, a lot of times people who are victims of these things that once they realize that they've been scammed, they just walk away. They're embarrassed. They're afraid. They're ashamed, whatever it is. Get over that. Doug, that's where I see the other parallel is that it's the same thing with cults. When people realize they've been in a cult and they've been duped, they don't want to talk about it. They want to pretend it never happened and move on with their lives. And I can totally see why people would get out of a, a pyramid scheme if they ever do get out and not take any action because it would have, they'd have to admit to themselves that they got conned, which is very difficult because then, then you feel stupid and you feel like all the things, of course, Nippy and I went through, but I hope this podcast encourages people to take action and not just, you know, go hide under a rock. But one of the things I wanted to bring up with you, and I know that you've read my book, so thank you for that. (laughs) The actually the last moment where I sought Keith in the chapter called Illusion of Hope. I don't know if you remember this, but just to back up for a minute, in in addition to all of Keith's other schemes around Nexium, one of the things he came up with in the months before I left was this idea of the point system. So he recognized that most of the people that came to took ESP weren't big recruiters, right? So he, we were taught that every out of every 10 students, one would become a coach. And out of every, the, every 10 coach, approximately one would become a proctor. Of course, I wanted to be, you know, wanted to be one of those few that made it up the ranks. And as you know, from my book, I worked and hustled hard to get up the ranks. And that really worked for me in terms of them dangling that carrot and giving me all the goodies and being special and feeling like I'd really accomplished something and all that stuff. But he recognized that that wasn't enough to keep, it wasn't enough fresh blood as he called it in the company. I know it's so terrible. So he created this thing called the point system. So to get to become a salesperson, you had to sell $12,000 worth of curriculum. And most people couldn't do that. And, you know, I first started by just by telling people I want to get my money back. And then someone actually, Barb Boucher approached me and said, you know, you should become a salesperson and you can earn commission on everything that you, anything you sell. And it's quite, it was a quite a high commission. It was 20, was it 10% or 20%? I don't I'm blanking now. God, I've tried to block this out. Quite a high commission. But I, I believe that they bet on the fact that not most people would never get to salespeople. In fact, I was then, when I became a field trainer, I had to grow salespeople and I, I it was almost impossible. So he came up with this thing called the point system 
where the average student could bring somebody in, whatever they sold, 10% of that amount could be used towards future trainings, which at first we were like, wow, what a great idea. I like points. I like points on my credit card. That sounds amazing. But in the first, I'll never forget this. In the first meeting he had with all the field trainers, it was about 12 to 15 of us, he laid out the math. And my math is not like, that's not my strong point. So I'm like doing the math in my head of like, okay, 10% of five days, 2000 is like $200, $200 towards a level two. Because the idea was that people could earn points to take more curriculum. So it'd be a win-win for the company. More people would come in and the more people would take more curriculum and everyone would be growing and learning. Yay, humanity, right? This other guy, I'm not going to say his name, but at a Harvard MBA, put up his hand before me and said, wait, Keith, hold on. If I'm doing the math correctly here. Oh, because it was also the disclaimer that Keith casually said. He said, well, also these points will expire within a year and you have to have the total amount of points. Like a level two training was $6,000. You have $600 worth of points in order to get the training for free. So you have to pay, you pay for it entirely in points, not like half points, half cash. And it expires in the year. And this, this friend of mine, very smart guy, put up his hand and goes, Keith, wait, I'm just doing the math on that. I think that the average person would have to sell 17, 16 days in a year to earn that or something. It was something like that, like a, a number that I, like me, one of the top salesperson in the company, I would maybe sell one or two of those a year, 16 days. I normally sold five days and people would roll over into the 16 days. Anyway, he asked the question before I could, okay? But I, I was thinking it. I was like, "This wait, this math isn't right. And he got in so much trouble for questioning Keith in front of the leadership. In fact, when I left months later, he was still filling out breach forms and filling out what his plan was to, to heal how he'd been disrespectful and to heal how he had pulled the most inappropriate whatever. Like he got in trouble for it for this moment, right? And in my head, I'm like, oh, thank God it wasn't me (laughs) who asked the question. But they had hired me. I hope this story pays off for you. (laughs) They had hired me. And by hired, I mean, I was working for free to as because I'm also an actor, right? And I do voiceover to do a video about this new point system. So the week that I was there last, which is also, by the way, the week that I'd done the Jeunesse training after I'd been branded. So I was like sleep deprived and exhausted and rolled into this studio. So Nancy had like a filming studio in her garage. Nippy's giving me the wrap it up. Okay. So I rolled in and I'm sitting down in the front of the camera and I'm like, hi, everybody. I'm Sarah Edmondson. Do you like points? I love points. I love points on my credit card. I love free coffee at the coffee shop. When you get buy nine, get the 10th free. And this is true about me. I do love points. And so I tried to explain this, like when you purchase a new program, you get 10% towards your next program. So Keith comes in to check on me during this process. And he, this is the last time I saw him. And he says to me, make sure your state is up, that you're in a good state because it's really important that you're enthusiastic. And that's really the main selling point because the whole idea is to create an illusion of hope. And I was tired. I don't, I was still drinking the Kool-Aid. I just couldn't grok what he was saying. It didn't fully land, but I it was a seed that was planted and was eventually part of my wake up a few weeks or maybe a month or so later where I was like, Oh my God, this whole thing is an illusion of hope. And that's, what's wrong about it. That's the lie. He dangles this carrot of get to Proctor. As soon as you get to Proctor, you'll get 10% commission. And as soon as you get this, then you can do that. Most people never reach it. What's stunning to me is that none of this is new. That, yeah. that this story has gone on 
over and over again. And it, it is, and I'm coming at it from the, the multi-level marketing side. I've represented anti-cult activists, but I haven't represented cult victims. I've represented MLM victims. But that story that you just told is like a million stories of people who got roped into uh, rising up the ranks in, in an MLM. Uh, constantly, you know, with this hope dangling in front of them and having to uh, portray this positive attitude. I, I'm thinking of um, a guy named Eric Scheibler who, who wrote a book, an ebook called uh, Merchants of Deception. He became an Amway Emerald. So compelling because he's one of those guys who went up on the stage talking about success. Meanwhile, he's, he's basically bankrupt. He, he is so sucked into this process of having to be positive, stay positive, never ask questions, don't be negative, never question your upline. And I've seen this over and over again with, with not just with Amway, but with, with, with every MLM. You know, there's this sort of relentless positivity. Yes, toxic positivity. Mm-hmm. You've got to keep up that belief level, both to convince yourself, but to convince the other people in the group so that, you know, there's, there's this world, this sort of sick world where, where people are, are not being genuine right. with each other, which I find profoundly disturbing. I mean, this is not mm-hmm. just a financial scam. This is a scam that... It's a spiritual one. Uh, yeah. Emotional. It's a, yeah. yeah, it's a spiritual and emotional one. I totally relate to that. I remember feeling very shackled as I got quite high rank because... Most of my friends were below me in rank, so I could never really share with them what was going on. Most of them didn't know what I struggled with until they read my book. And then they were like, oh, I didn't know that you were going through that. I'm like, well, I couldn't tell you. And if I went up rank, I'd get in trouble. I'd get in trouble for being negative. When I told Claire Bronfman that I was upset because they were withholding our, our commissions for some bullshit reason, and she said I was being entitled. Yeah. And which was very confusing to me because I was like, well, I am entitled to that. I earned it. But also entitlement was what Keith said was one of the worst traits of, of women. And I was like, well, I don't want to be entitled. So then I have to just shut up and not get paid my commissions. Like it was just it was really awful. And I really I did. I really didn't feel like I could tell anyone what was going on for me. And I can see that in in the people that I know that are still deeply embedded. And I think. I mean, the more we talk, the more I just see the, well, it's not even just the parallels. Nexium was an MLM. I just didn't think it was an MLM because I believed the leadership when they told me it was not an MLM because MLMs are unethical and what we were doing was ethical. Yeah. What, what they call, I guess what the cult people call a thought stopping cliche, just a, a quick pat answer to, to a yeah. difficult question right. that, that sort of stops any further discussion. You know, yeah. there is yeah. a couple things that strikes me about, you know, listening to you guys and one is that all those years that I spent defending Rick Ross and, and uh, Dr. Martin in, in the in the Nexium case, I never really looked at the multi-level marketing aspect of, of Nexium. I mean, because the, the cases against Rick and, and Dr. Martin were based on copyright and Lanham Act, you know, you know, unfair competition. You know, the issue of whether Nexium was a multi-level marketing company or a pyramid scheme, just it wasn't an issue in the case. Right. So even even though I, I'm, a, I'm a specialist in, in, in the, the MLM area, it wasn't something that I ever looked at. And it's fascinating to hear you talk about the compensation plan and, and that whole process. There's been this unholy relationship between self-help and MLM. Yes. It goes, it goes way, way back. In fact, some of the 
earliest MLMs. I'm thinking, you know, there was, a, there was a company called Coscott Interplanetary, which sold cosmetics. And it was run by a guy named Glenn Turner. Now, Glenn Turner had another company that sold self-help seminars, much like ESP or, or, or Nexium, which was called Dare to be Great. So he had both, you know, both things going on. There was another company called Holiday Magic that was an MLM. And the guy who founded that, William Penn Patrick, also had a self-help organization. And you see a lot of the self-help people become speakers at MLM events. You know, you, you yes. see a lot of these, you know, the, the, the sort of the inspirational speakers are hired to give pitches at, at big extravaganzas held by the MLM companies. But there's, so there's this crossover between these two areas or overlap. Keith Ranieri, you know, ended up in both of these areas. Right. To your point, you know, I've been approached in other MLM things. I'd literally rolled my eyes at it, literally, but not really recognizing that I was in one, but it just seemed not the forefront of what I was doing, you know, because you said you tried it and that wasn't really what you were focusing on. And it wasn't, it didn't seem like it was talked about much. It was just, this is the sales structure. If this is an avenue you want to pursue. And I didn't think much more about it, but when I was approached by anything else that had that feel to it, I was allergic to it almost. So it was particularly, I want to say subtle in a way, but it wasn't the focus because we were mostly well, indoctrinated into the growth aspect. Yeah. You didn't have to yeah, it wasn't, go up the stripe path. It wasn't path. forced. Yeah. Yeah. People could just way. be students, but if you wanted to go up the stripe path, that's where the MLM component but I just sort of, I just always sort of, confusing. Yeah. I put, just put something together when you said that people who leave MLMs don't talk about it, but th- we learned about this in our first episode with Dr. Stephen Hassan, this concept of a planted phobia that if you leave like within a religious cult that you'll go blind or you'll die or get cancer or something. But with ours, if you leave, you never work your issues. Like you're, you're, you're a failure, right? You'll never be a success. And I think that's the same thing with an MLM you're taught that the the compensation plan is designed to work. It's got a whole path. You have a whole business. You're buying into something that's all laid out for you. All you have to do is do it. And so if you don't, you feel like a failure. So most people, either they leave and they don't say anything about it, or they keep trying to buy back the dollar, right? They keep trying to make the investment worth it. Well, keep, they have equity in it. Yeah. You've got the equity. So they keep trying to make it work, make it work. And they go deeper and deeper and deeper into debt. And I guess if you could, if you wouldn't mind summarizing the red flags for people who are joining something and they can't tell it's an MLM. I get asked this question, you know, how do you protect yourself from this or how do you get people out of it? And it's a tough issue because usually you're being approached by someone, you know, initially there's this, there's a trust element involved, you know, leverage trust. I've heard that term. It's it's tough to say no. And it's Mm -hmm. also tough to ask questions. If you haven't been approached one thing is you, you, you should ask questions and mm-hmm. you should ask, you know, you know, is this a money making venture? And you know, how, how do you make the money? How, you know, how, how does that flow? And most, most of the time, the person recruiting you won't be able to answer that question because they don't understand it themselves yet. Mm-hmm. You know, you sort of have to keep your, your guard up. Another thing I'd, I'd say, you know, if, if your gut tells you there's something fishy, you, you really should listen to your gut. Because um, yeah. I see, I've heard, I've spoken with a lot of people who said, you know, I, I thought there was something funny about this, but it was my cousin or it was my best friend or, you know, I, I went along with it. But I think, you know, right. you, you know, you know, if they start saying, well, make a list of everyone, you know, because you, you're going <laughs> to want to share this opportunity. 
I, I'd say that's that's a flashing red light there. Right. Sure. And the question is, do you want to stay friends with everybody you know? <laughs> do you want to turn all of your relationships into commercial relationships? <laughs> yes. Do you want yeah. all your friends to hate you and never invite you to anything again? That always has a stain. That always has a stain. I mean, listen, I'm still cleaning it up. I still, I have a lot of people in my life who I know have avoided me because of this. And, and this is part of my cleanup. You know, let's educate and learn from our mistakes. I can't, I learned this from Mike Rinder episode three or four. I can't change what I did, but I can learn from it and, and apply it to the future and try to make things better. So here we are. And I so appreciate you. I just like, I just, I love that, that we've found a, an expert in, in MLMs, but also somebody with Nexium experience. And we have a segment. Have you had a chance to listen to our podcast yet, by the way? Uh, no, I haven't. I'm sorry. You're a busy man. You got more important things to do, but we have a segment. This is actually it's better. Optional. It's an optional. If, it, if this doesn't work for you, we'll cut this out. But we have a bonus segment. Nippy and I often share with each other spontaneously things that really bothered us about what happened that necessarily aren't that big, but, but really ultimately, Nippy, when you want to explain it? Every now and then I'll be like brushing my teeth, thinking about what happened. I go, sir, you know what really chaps my ass? <laughs> and so the segment has become... What chaps what, my what ass? Chaps it's my become ass. a hashtag. It's become a thing. So what chaps my ass? And I actually spoke about this in another podcast where I was being interviewed. And I want to share this with you because it's MLM related. <laughs> but the story is, so when you when you went up the stripe path and became a proctor or decided that you were going to do it, do it ESP seriously, if you were a part of an MLM beforehand, you had to not do it anymore. And the reason was it was told to me is that because if I'm in like, oh, yeah. if I was a distributor in some company and then I come to Nexium, I was going to use Nexium as a recruiting ground for to sell my product to. So we weren't allowed to do another MLM. But when DOS was created and... I was invited into something that was, I was told was totally separate from Nexium. Okay. Nothing to do with Nexium. I said straight up to Lauren, is Keith in charge of this women's group? Does he know about it? No, he's got nothing to do with it, blah, blah, blah. Then I was told that part of being in this after I'd taken a vow of obedience is I had to start recruiting people, recruiting my own slaves in this basically was not, I now see as a blackmail MLM scheme. And I'd found out that the person that I would have brought in to be my partner for life had already been recruited by somebody else. And this is a woman who I had brought in. She, I was her sponsor. So technically she's in my organization or my pyramid. Right. And I was so pissed because they were, I, I realized that the DOS women who came in before me had used the organization that I had built. Keep in mind, Doug, I'm not proud of this, but I brought in like 10% of the entire organization, not necessarily me personally, but, but people I knew and that they knew in my whole organization was was 2,000 of the approximately, we don't know if it's 17,000 or 20,000, somewhere in there, 2,000 came in through me. And these women were recruiting through my network and my coaches and my leaders in Vancouver had been brought in into their little subculture MLM thing. So it really chapped my ass that they they weren't able to recruit, but they recruited into my friends. And not only that, like, it's not about like, oh, they sold them protein shakes or something. They elicited naked photos from them. They, they put them in a compromising situation. Women that were friends of mine gave very inappropriate videos that not only were not to other women in a women's empowerment program, they went to Keith for his personal arousal. And that, I mean, I'm, 
in all seriousness, Chaps My Ass was supposed to be a, a, a humorous part of our podcast, but that this is infuriating to me still to this day. And just to wrap it all up together in a nice little bow in hearing you and your other interviews and on the Dream Podcast, which if anyone wants to know more about MLMs, I highly recommend that whole season about MLMs. I really understood that the history, and I'm going to summarize this in terms of women having careers in a, in sometimes situations where they normally weren't making any money and they were, then now they felt empowered and they were selling product to other women and there was this bond. That is the worst part of this whole thing. It's a, They're selling empowerment, but it's actually enslavement. Yeah. And that's how everything ties together for me with this podcast and MLMs and what happened with Nexium and now my blood's boiling. So anything else that you want to say on that? I, well, there's a lot. I'd say one, one thing about not recruiting for other MLMs. That is, again, that's something that happens in, in every MLM. They don't want you using your network to, to recruit other distributors. It, it, the worst thing that can happen to an MLM company is for a big high-level person to leave and, and bring all of right. their downline with them and take it away from, from the company. So they're, they're very, almost more worried about that than they are being accused of being a pyramid scheme because right. that will destroy right. the company. If, if, um, that hits them in the wall. If you do this cross recruiting, of course, the other thing, obviously the rules are always meant to be to benefit the company. So if there's some, some reason to violate the rules, then they'll, they'll do that. I mean, they'll, they'll make an exception to, to benefit them. Obviously, Nexium with the pictures or the, the what was the term that was used? Uh, collateral. Yeah, collateral. That that puts well, everything on a on a whole different level. Sure. Certainly does. <laughs> Do you have a what, a what chaps your ass either about MLMs or about your time with Keith or anything that you have like a little juicy nugget you'd like to share with us? I can say I I, I met him once when when they they had appealed this ruling to the First Circuit. First Circuit had a mediation program that they tried to resolve cases that were on appeal. So he had to come up to to uh, Boston uh, with his lawyer. And I, I just remember this sort of this very unassuming, you know, very, you know, you know, chunky little yeah. guy. The idea that he became this guru that 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 amazed and that had this devoted following is just totally bizarre. I mean, this was this would have been in the in the mid 1990s. And it's just it's it stunned me when I when I realized that this was the same guy I had met you know many years earlier. It just uh, yeah, I, I never would have predicted it. That's not my job. Yeah. Well, you <laughs> well, do you're, your you're job good well. at your job. You're good at your job, and we're lucky to have you. I'm so glad Ken and introduced us. Thanks for your work. Yeah, thanks for your work. It's important, and you have an ally in us. And, and uh, thank you for having me. Thanks, Douglas. Thank you. Wow, my head is full <laughs> of information. Lots of good information there. One thing that we we didn't touch on, but I did learn about in my prep for this interview, is that the other thing that can happen that's uh, no good in an MLM is that there's a distortion of value in the product itself. So they will say the benefit of being a distributor or an associate or whatever is that you get the product at wholesale. But if you compare that product, whatever it is that you're selling, whether it be cleaner or essential oils or hosiery or 
jewelry or whatever. Compare that to other stuff on the market and especially somewhere at like, you know, Costco or Walmart where you can the lowest rate that it could be. And is it of the same quality? And if, of course, the companies that say it's of amazing quality and you're getting it at such a good rate and it's the best whatever on the market, do that research because often there's already inflation and you're actually getting something at retail price. And that's how the company makes money and is able to pay all their commissions is that they're, they're selling something already inflated to the distributor. So another red flag. But let's wrap it up. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you all. See you next time on A Little, Little Bit, Bit Culty. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We're going to be back soon with more episodes of A Little Bit Culty with more experts and survivors and sometimes experts who are survivors and some familiar faces from The Vow. If you got suggestions or questions on upcoming topics, find us on Instagram at A Little Bit Culty. And for more background on what got me to this point, my memoir, Scarred, true story of how I escaped Nexium, the cult that found my life, is available on Amazon, Audible, and wherever books are sold. If you'd like to help us spread the word about a little bit culty podcast, please give us a five star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Like literally take their phone out and, and press subscribe. Five stars. Five That's stars. five of them. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every major listening app. A little bit culty is executive produced by me, your co-host, Sarah Edmondson, and Anthony Nippy Ames. Associate producer is Jess Tardy. Produced, edited, mixed, and mastered by Citizens of Sound. Our amazing theme song, Cultivated, is by John Bryant and co-written by Nigel Asselin. Additional original music is composed by Will Rutherford. We'll be back with more episodes. Until then, don't don't join join a a cult. cult. I'm Sarah Edmondson, and thanks for listening to A Little Bit Culty.